of a series called Who Are We? Um, and the point of that is that um, like, it's one of the biggest questions in life is who am I? But we also know that identity can't be formed in a vacuum and it can't be formed outside a community. So we're in the middle of the series called Who Are We? And so tonight I'm going to dig into who are we um, as the people of God? Well, we're, we're people that worship. Um, but before I do that, I've got a question for you, as is always my want. Um, are you a morning or a, a morning person or a night owl? Hands up if you're a morning person. All right, um, I'm judging you. Who's a night owl? There you go, there's my people. Um, middle of the day, any students here? There you go. 11.30, cold can of beans for breakfast, love it. Um, do you think it's better to be a morning or a night person? Morning, okay, there you go. Well, you know you can find a study for anything. Well, I found one on this. Um, if you're a morning person, apparently, so hands up morning people, so I can see you. More persistent, would you say that's true? Self-directed, you set higher goals, plan better for the future, and have a better sense of well-being. And compared to night owls, you're less likely to smoke or drink. On the other hand, night owls, here we are, where's my night owls, where's my people? There you go. We are better, no. We, we have um, uh, better measures on memory, on processing speed, cognitive ability, even if it, the tests are done in the morning. Tend to be more open to new experiences, probably because you're drunk. Um, and tend to be more creative. Um, and one study even shows that we're just as healthy and sometimes a little bit wealthier. Although I don't believe any of that, but it was an interesting study nonetheless. The um, thing is, is when I think about this, I'm a night owl, I would much rather be a morning person. And I think the reasoning is, is I think I'll just get more done. Like I'll, I'll go forward in life quicker. My New Year's resolution for about four years in a row has been to go to bed earlier. Because I literally think if I go to bed earlier, I'll wake up earlier and I'll get more stuff done. I'll maybe even go for a run, which I hate doing, but I might even do things like that. Um, and I think at the core of all of us is this real desire to improve who we are, to, to move forward in life. Is to, we want to become better versions of ourselves. Becoming a better version of ourselves is innate to who we are as humans. And let's face it though, we are all works in progress. Um, but that's why we, you know, we go to the gym or we do fitness, because we want to be better fit, we want to be fitter versions of our current selves. That's why we like to study or to read, because we want to be more intelligent versions of ourselves. That's why we work on our emotional health, because we want to be better. We want to be more peaceful than we currently are as well. Um, for many of us, though, I'm just going to hold my hand up as well. Like sometimes we just feel stuck in that journey, so it's good to acknowledge that. Although we want to improve, often life can throw a curveball at us and we get stuck for a while. But the normal kind of life trajectory is that we would go forward, is that we would keep developing. That's why the self-help industry is so big. Um, the self-help industry in America alone is worth over 14 U.S. dollars, 14 billion U.S. dollars. That's one book, 14. 14 billion US dollars a year. Apparently the industry is thousands of years old. They had it in ancient Egypt. It was a genre called sabayat. I think I've said that right, which was instruction on life. It was giving you maxims. It was reflections. It was observations on life. It was um, meditations on how to get the best thing out of life. The problem with self-help is apparently no one knows if it actually helps. There's not enough research been done in it. And also 80% of people who buy self-help books buy more self-help books, which shows that the ones they have already bought aren't really helping. 
Um, and some, some studies, apparently some, suggest that, um, that I buy self-help books. Hands up if you buy a self-help book. Of course you do. Um, podcasts, all that sort of stuff. Apparently we buy it. I don't even really read them. Like you read the first 20 pages. And apparently most people who buy self-help books, we just feel better by buying one. That's enough. I bought one. I didn't even need to read it. Um, so in the, the self-help market is huge because we want to improve. We want to be better. We don't want to be where we currently are. Um, but as I said, it, it's proven to not really work, so don't waste your money. Um, how do we become the people we want to be? Well, you could try working really, really hard. Um, I think I might have shared before, so forgive me for repeating my story. Um, but before I got married eight years ago, I decided to get like super fit. I'm like, I'm going to hire a PT. I'm going to do cardio. I hate cardio, but I'm going to do that. A diet. I'm staring at me right now because, anyway. Um, but so I was like, I'm going to hire a PT. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to do everything I can to get really, really fit. Because I had a vision of what I'd look like on the beach. I never got there, but I had a vision. This is my diet for one day whilst I was training. Wake up, protein shake. Breakfast, four to six eggs. Mid-morning snack of cream cheese and pineapple. Then a pre-workout protein shake. Then you work out. Then you have a post-protein workout um, protein shake. Then half a chicken and salad for lunch. Then a mid-afternoon snack of banana and peanut butter. And then your evening meal was the second half of a chicken with more stir-fried vegetables. And then a pre-sleep pre calcium-based protein shake. That's a lot, isn't it? That's an awful lot. Um, I had to work out really, really hard to stop that all turning to fat. And to be honest, I just felt too heavy. And in the end, I lost it all for my wedding because I couldn't fit into my suit. So it was an absolute waste of time. We can try and improve on our own, can't we? But sometimes it just feels like too much effort. It's too much work, like costs too much of our time and too much of our finances. The problem is, is no matter how hard we try, it can feel like the means by which we want to improve, they just feel too hard. It just feels too much. And the issue is, is when we strive to get somewhere in our own strength, we end up using up our remaining strength trying to stay where we've got to. Um, we then have to self-maintain this level that we've exhausted ourselves getting to. Because muscle turns into fat. We don't like it when our finances drop, if we're being honest. We don't want to take a backward step in our career. And we don't like it when our relationships, when we don't feel like they're moving forward as well. And the, our problem as humans is we burden ourselves with this burden of, of, of accomplishment. Because we think ultimately, if I become that person, it will make me feel fulfilled. Imagine you finally get there. You get the business success you crave. You get the relationship that you want or your, the body or the bank balance that you want. Does it satisfy us? No. There's loads of reasons why it doesn't satisfy. But the main reason is that the thing that we're striving for, um, be it power, money, relationships, all that stuff, it doesn't bring meaning to our lives. The actor Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. So what is the answer? How do we become the people we're designed to be? Well, firstly, God did not design us to do life alone. And um, if you read the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, it talks about God making creation. And he says, right, this, like, it's not good for, for mankind. It's not good for a person to be alone. He designed us brilliantly. He designed us perfectly. And we were designed to thrive when we were in right relationship with him and with each other. God knows that we're not the finished article. And he doesn't expect us to become the finished article in our own strength. There's an Old Testament book called Zechariah. And in the book it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The word for might 
is, uh, um, means strength, efficiency, wealth, or it was sometimes used for an army. So it's not by my own strength. It's not by my own efficiency. It's not by my own wealth or by force, but it's by the Spirit of God. There's a principle in the Bible that I would argue um, we can see play out throughout much of life, um, regardless of if you're a Christian or not. And the principle is this. We become like what we worship. So we become like what we worship. The word worship means to ascribe worth. So if you deem something valuable, we deem something really, really valuable, then we can tend to worship it. And so we deem that to someone or something. The Hebrew word for worship is avoda, which means service or work. So for those who serve or work or worship money, it means that when we have money, we feel like life's amazing. We feel like we have this brilliant sense of value. We get our identity in having money. Um, but when we don't have money or the effect of having that amount of money wears off, we can feel unworthy and no value and sometimes even a little depressed. It's the same with relationships. If we worship relationships or a certain relationship, um, all of our worth and value is placed on that relationship or that set of people. And life feels great when we've got it and when we're getting attention and then that person or those people are giving us love and affirmation. But like we know, relationships aren't perfect because we're not perfect. So when we, we don't feel loved or valued, then actually it feels like we can crash. It feels like, who am I? Like, I don't know who I am anymore. We then start to become worse versions of ourselves. I know I do when I'm in that state. Like, I'm not the nicest person or like I'm not as loving or thoughtful or I don't reach out to people as much as maybe I should do. We can sometimes become cynical, bitter and hurt and full of resentment as, uh, as a result. The same could be said for power and influence. If we worship power and influence, on the way up it feels brilliant. We're meeting people with power and influence and we're telling people who we're meeting who are powerful and influential. And we think, oh, they're going to help us get onto the next rung of the ladder as well. And we talk about it and we love it and we crave it. But the problem is, is that there's always more power and influence that we could want. I mean, look at, um, let's be honest, look at politicians. Like they'll never be happy. They'll never be happy with the power that they have, and there's always the desire for more. This, this, this almost all-consuming desire for more, 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 more. And then we start to feed that, and it, but it's never satisfied. The, the monster's never full. So we realize that when we ascribe our value to these things, again, they don't ultimately fill us. None of these things fulfill us. There's a, when Jesus came, he said, uh, Jesus, those of you who don't know, Jesus was God and, and God decided to come to earth to reveal himself fully to humanity. And Jesus said, I come to give you life and life, a life of fulfillment. Today, I want to lay out for us why I believe that if we want that life of fulfillment, if we want to feel completely full by God, then we do it by becoming worshippers of God. So we become fulfilled when we become worshippers of God. So let me tell you quickly who God is so that we know who we're worshipping. I think one of the best descriptions for God is in the book of 1 John. And um, the scripture says this. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So what's that telling us? The first thing is that God loves us. The second thing is that God is love. When we read that God is love, we're not just saying that it's a verb, it's an action, it's a doing thing. It's not that he chooses to love us. When we say God is love, it's his very nature. It's his very, the essence of who he is. 
Um, as a stupid analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, a rock is a rock. It can't help but be a rock. It's rock-like in substance, in nature. A rock cannot be anything other than a rock. That's just what it is. It might take a different shape, but it is a rock. God is love. It's his nature. It's who he is. He cannot be anything other than love. It's not a choice to love us. He just loves us because he does, because that's his nature. It's not, it's not a choice. So we can rest assured that he loves us, and it's his nature to love us. His love has nothing to do with us. We can walk away from his love. His love is still there. All we have to do is return and go back to it. His love is always there. It's steadfast. And all we have to do is walk towards him to receive his love. So what is love? Again, we all have different versions of love. We've had different lived experiences. We've had different parents. We've, you know, whatever. We subscribe to different versions of love. But the Bible talks about, um, I think called, there's five different Greek words for love in the Bible, but the love that is attributed to God is a word called agape. And so um, the Bible brilliantly describes what that love is. And so it's not romantic love, it's the love that God has for us. So it's, it's God, it's God's love. And it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, love is patient. So you, you, can, you can replace the word love here for God if you want. Love is patient and kind, is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful, and love endures through every circumstance. That is love, and God is love. I know I want to be more like God. I would love to be more like that list. Who wouldn't want to be more patient, more loving, more kind, you know, not irritable, all those things. I, that's the self-improvement I think we all crave. We all want to be that better person. We all want to essentially be made in the image of God, which is what we were. And what we're looking to do is return to that. But here's the best thing about following Jesus. This is the difference between be following Jesus and following anything else or any other God or any other ideology in life is that we don't need to exhaust ourselves trying to do those things on our own strength. And this is the secret. This is the, this is the secret to change. This is how we become the people we're supposed to be, to be made in the image of God, to be more like him. It's the secret of how we do it. All we need to do is worship the definition and source of love, to worship God because we become like what we worship. So if we want to become more loving, worship God. If we want to become more peaceful, worship God. I'm not saying that's easy, especially when you're struggling, but it's a choice. If we want to be more patient, worship God. If we want to be more powerful than our struggles, worship God. Worshiping God is our primary weapon in our fight against stuff that comes against us. Just want to also say God is not an egotist. He's not needing our affection. He's not insecure. He doesn't have a poor memory. He's not needy. He doesn't need worship for his sake. He asks us to worship for our sake. Every decision, every thought God has ever had, every plan, everything is 100% derived from and motivated by his nature to love. So in the book of John, Jesus says that a time is coming um, and has now come. When true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. They are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. 
God is not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. He's not looking for the product. He's looking for the heart of somebody who wants to worship him. We become like whatever we worship. And as a father who loves me, and there's nothing more the father could want better for me than to become like him, to become like Jesus. When we worship God, we become more and more like him. God is looking for people whose hearts are positioned to worship him because our hearts are open and we're open to be shaped and to look more like him, to be more peaceful, kinder, powerful and good. Um, so I just want to let you know a little bit about why we worship the way we do here at St. Peter's. If you're a Christian but you've come from other churches, there's lots of different ways people worship, even within a similar stream. But we have a particular way that we worship here. Um, we all know that we name different parts of the service. This is the speaking part. We have the musical part. And then we have the prayer ministry part. Um, but actually worship is more than just music. Worship is a lifestyle. Um, and that as part of our worship, it can be singing, but it can also be art, it can be dance, um, it's loving our neighbor, it's having good conversations. Is there anything where we're pointing our attention, we're pointing people towards Jesus? Um, we, we don't, by the way, we don't have to choose one way of worship. We can choose all those. Like, we can go for all of it. We can, we can be kind to our neighbor and we can paint and we can sing and we can dance. You also don't have to do anything that is uncomfortable. I'm not a dancer, as you all know. Um, my wife is, God bless her, but I'm not. So like my thing is I love singing. So like there's a way that we'll all connect with God. But music is a fantastic platform by which historically we worship God. The people of God have always been the singing people. We've been that way for thousands of years. And there's something really significant about when we sing praises to God. Um, there's some really good books on it. But basically they sum it up with um, our words are incredibly powerful and they matter. You know, the words that we say actually matter. Um, when, when we say something out loud, we also start to believe it. Um, there's a passage in the Old Testament book of Joel 3.10. It says, let the weak say I am strong. Not let the weak think I am strong. When we say something out, even if we feel different, there's something starts to happen when we hear truth. When we hear truth, when it's said out loud, it starts to make a difference. I'm not saying it'll do it immediately, but I think over the time we start to become formed by our words. There's power to change in what we say and what we declare. Saying and speaking out things in, out loud are incredibly important. And they help us to recalibrate ourselves with what God's saying, especially if they're scriptural. We start to align ourselves. Well, God says that, he says, I'm not weak, I'm strong. Well, I feel weak right now, but he said, I'm strong. So, okay, God, I'm going to trust you in that. I'm going to step out and, and I'm going to trust that you're going to meet me in that place as well. I don't feel it, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to do it anyway. So here at St. Peter's, um, we have like a particular flow that we think helps us to get into the presence of God with worship. Um, and it starts by, we, we sing songs about God's character, his good attributes. So we sing songs about his goodness, his faithfulness, his kindness, um, his love and that kind of stuff. Um, because it, sometimes it makes us aware that we're also not those things. Um, so oh, God is good and he's faithful. Well, I'm not always kind and I'm not always loving and I'm not always patient all the time. So what we do is we start off with those things. They help us direct our attention towards God. But then when we realize that we're not those things, that's really when we need to come to that almost this moment of coming to Jesus at the cross where he took all of my brokenness. He took all of that stuff and he took it upon himself so that I don't have to. So it's in that moment of realization that I'm not that guy that I want to be. That I come to Jesus at the cross and I say, thank you for what you've done. Now, can you take on all this brokenness and can you help me to become the person that you've created me to be? 
The beauty of the cross is that it's evidence that God didn't expect us to do this on our own, that he did it for us. He did it on our behalf. So he sent his son Jesus to do it for us. And Jesus did it so that we can be free. We can be free and we can be forgiven in order that nothing would stand in the way of a relationship, a life-giving, fulfilling, love-filling relationship with God. As we draw closer to God, we're transformed by his love and by his spirit. And that would be kind of the next part of our journey of worship. It's in this closeness, this intimacy with God where we realize that, yeah, I'm broken. But actually he loves me anyway. He loves me so much and he took on my brokenness that I start to become incredibly thankful. And I start to feel love for God. I start to feel like, oh my gosh, you are, I can't express it, which we try to in, in song form. Um, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it's through experiencing and knowing the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Remember that repentance just means to change the way we think. So when we change the way we think, we change our lives. We change what we think, what we do, what we believe. So it is about turning our behavior, but it starts in there. You can't change your life until it all starts in there. But it's when we experience the goodness of God in that place of intimate worship that we get real change. When we experience God's goodness, we experience his love, that then you often elicits songs of love and thankfulness and intimacy and reverence and awe for how amazing he is. We worship God because of his great love for us. It's not for his great love. It's not so that he loves us. He loves us. It's his nature. But we do it from that place of love. And it is his spirit at work in us as we worship that transforms us into the people that we were created to be, the people that we actually want to be. It's in that moment of intimacy where, our, um, where you're, you might start to see it, you might see it every now and then, that like Nikki and the teams and that, we're also starting to fear, figure out what's God doing tonight. There's sometimes this freedom towards the end of worship where we're trying to follow the spirits. When it says to worship people in the spirit and truth, we're, we're genuinely... Nikki's and the teams do good jobs trying to put their set list together, but they're also open to following the Spirit. If in the moment God says, hey, why don't you go down this avenue? People are really hurting right now. Go after that. Or people want to celebrate right now. Like We're often having conversations like, what's God doing? And things like that as well. And we're just all doing our best to follow God. This is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, that we're following God. How do we know it's God? Psalm 22.3 says that God inhabits the praises of his people. The Spirit of God is attracted to our praises. And when we worship, there's a new level of his presence amongst us. I don't really fully get it theologically. Ben might be able to explain another time. But like he's with us. But then there's something that happens when we all come together and worship that just feels different. I'm coming into land now. But the thing that I really want us to focus on is a passage, 2 Corinthians 3.16. It might come up on the screen in a sec. It says, um, but anyone who turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, in worship, it says that, so we turn to God. So, in worship, we turn to God. And our eyes are taken away from ourselves and our situations. And it redirects our attention and our affection to God. So whenever we turn to God, the veil is taken away. So the stuff that we focused on has been taken away. 
when the veil, which is the division between us and God, is removed, we, be, we come face to face with God. And we come face to face with the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, which is what we all want. So this stuff's been taken away, and then we come face to face with God, and that's where we find freedom. So we worship. In worship, we turn our attention towards God so we can enter his presence as well. The presence is here, but we can often be distracted. I'm often distracted. We're distracted by the noise of life. We're distracted by what's been going on before and probably what's going on after. You may not have eaten. Your stomach's rumbling. Like We get distracted, but we turn our attention to God, and all that stuff can be taken away so that we can focus on him. When we focus on him, we come face to face with the Spirit. And it says, And we who now with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So we become aware that he is God. I'm the first one to preach every week about him being a good father. He is a good father. He's the perfect father. He's also God. He's all-powerful, glorious God who created the heavens and the earth. And that's the father we come to in worship. So it says, and we all now with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And we become aware that he's God. And we are being transformed into his image. So we've turned to God. That's why we worship. We turn to him. The veil comes away. We become aware of him. And, and in this place of being transformed, we start to become like him. And then it says, we're ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's not us. It's not because we've chosen the right songs. It's not because of the lighting. It's the Spirit at work in us as we turn to God and we turn our affection to him. So when we come to God in worship, it's through this transition that we come, uh, first of all, with our stuff, and then we come to the cross, and we leave our stuff with Jesus, and then we go on further into the presence of God, into that place of intimacy. So that's what I want us to do tonight. That's what I want us to talk about this, because I want us to have some time to worship. So I've got a few things that I'd, lo I'd love to um, speak to different groups of us here tonight. Um, so when we start to worship again, if you're the sort of person who can get caught up in the objective part of worship, you're like, yeah, I love singing songs about God's goodness and he's a good father and all that stuff. Um, but you're not so good with acknowledging your own stuff, which is probably a few of us. Um, can I ask that you maybe do look at God being perfect and then go, who am I in the light of that? I don't want you to stay in that place though. I just want us to acknowledge that this is part of the journey. Um, and in that place with Jesus on the cross, focus on the fact that we are totally forgiven, like absolutely 100% forgiven. Focus on the fact of how valuable, valuable, valuable you are that Jesus died for you. The worth of something is what someone's prepared to pay, right? I say this again and again, but if you think you've got a million pound house, but people only want to pay you half a million, you have a half a million pound house, your worth is in what people are going to pay for you, pay for something. And God paid with his life. Like you're that valuable. Focus on that at that moment. Gosh, God, he's that, I'm that valuable to him. If you're good with all that and you're fine and you're like, yeah, I'm good with that. I'm good with the grace, the mercy. Um, and you're enjoying the forgiveness or maybe even you're thinking, oh, I feel a bit rubbish because God's all that and I'm not. Then I encourage you to take that next step forward, which is the bit into intimacy. It may feel strange for some people, um, but this is where we express love to God. Um, it may feel a bit, oh, just a bit, you know, these songs are a bit irreverent, actually. They're a bit like all focused on kind of love and things like that. But it's when we begin to fully grasp what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did for all of creation, how great God is, that love should start to bubble up in us, that this love starts to come to the service. And that can find itself an expression in song, in dance, in art, 
in all those ways. And it's often when we, when we get into that place, when we push ourselves to say, God, I really want to push myself into your love, into your intimacy, that actually we realize we're all in. It could be that moment where we're kind of stood there, and in our tradition, it's where your hands are held high and things like that. Or you could be on your knees. This is that moment of like, just, it's you and God. You don't care who's in the room. It's you and God, and you're pouring out your love to him, and you're receiving him pouring out his love to you too. The truth is that most of us can't get to that stage straight away. A few people can come in and get to that intimate stage, which is why, as I said, that there's a journey of worship. And it often feels like that in worship, kind of you come in, you feel a bit dry, like it's been hard to get here. Some people will admit, like even getting here, well done. Like it's sometimes hard to drag yourself along, but you know you need it. Um, and so that's why um, we value this journey, that actually we, we need to get there. And we are broken and we are human, but actually God knows that and he's created us beautifully and perfectly and he's allowed us to be able to do this journey with him um, and if we're honest sometimes we forget what God's like it's been busy so actually it's good to be reminded of who he is and who it is that we're worshipping um, now last thing a few people and I would have been like this in the past I would have been like ah oh, it's not about a model it's not about a formula um, you know we should just go with God straight away um, and yeah partly but equally any things only grow with structure like structure is so important um Chris, you love gardening. Like you can't grow, I mean, probably a few of you are, but I just know Chris does. Like things need structure to grow. And so that's where we'll do that. Sometimes God might say, great, love your structure. Today is different. There was a few times once, um, I remember it, like we just scrapped the word, we scrapped the word, didn't we? We didn't talk because actually it was, God was doing something in worshiping. And Nikki and I were talking in the week a bit, or voice, exchanging voice notes. You prepare, you prepare, you be prepared, but you prepare throughout the window when God shows up. So we're always up for that. But equally, Sometimes we do need this. We do need a bit of a structure to get there as well. Um, for those of you who want to know, it's based on Psalm 100, um, which I'll talk, we'll talk about another time, or you can grab me at the end, and also on New Testament temple theology, which I'm not going to cover because I've talked long enough. I think we all want to worship now, don't we? So the purpose of worship is to encounter God, is to encounter his love and his power, and to get to a place of intimacy with the Father. So we're going to do it now. So, Nikki, if you guys can get up. What I'd love us all to do tonight is, can we get rid of the chairs? Let's pick up the chairs, let's chuck them at the side, um, and let's get some space.